There's a couple things about about this time of year that I really love. Uh, number one, it's winter. Finally, I love winter. The snow, the cold mornings, hot chocolate, the pie, the soup, uh, apple cider, snow. Did I say that? The snow. Uh, Playing outside, you know, skiing, snowmobile, all the in the snow. I love winter. Is anybody with me? All right, all right, like one out of every seven or eight people, okay. But we are not outnumbered in spirit. Um, I really do. I look forward to winter all year long. My father-in-law used to tell me years ago. He said, uh, "Just wait until you're older. It won't be so much fun then." Well, I'm older, and it's still fun. So there, I love winter. Second thing I love is Christmas. It's almost here. It is. And I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. Family get-togethers, you know, extended family, people you haven't seen all year, maybe more than a couple times a year. The music that starts playing about the 4th of July, you know. Um, Christmas Eve services tomorrow is just such a fun, exciting day. Um, Opportunities that we have to give and to share our love with people around us. Um, and what it is that we celebrate, the birth of God's Son, Jesus. Amazing. I love Christmas. You know, but the truth is, what is, what is hoped for isn't always what is realized. Um, something that I've discovered, for instance, I've discovered that, that, uh, Wishing for snow doesn't always make it snow. Um, now, it worked pretty good last week. Um, I've got a pretty good percentage here going this winter so far. But, uh, but my overall percentage isn't so hot. And, and the same thing with Christmas. Um, sometimes the Christmas season, season can get robbed of its, of its joy because of, well, just because of life. You know, some of the things that Dave was talking about and praying about, um, the craziness that we allow to creep into our lives during, during this month. Um, what's hoped for isn't always what's, what's realized. Our teaching team, we were talking about this uh, a few months ago when we were thinking about the series during December and, and we agreed that the, the busyness of this time of year can sometimes steal uh, joy and peace out of Christmas for us. And, and one of the teams said, you know, for some of us, Sunday morning worship might be one place where we can experience joy and peace during the Christmas season. So, so that's been our goal over this month, is uh, to do our best to try to provide an environment that would inspire us um, with joy and, and with peace as we think about the good gifts that God gives to us, especially during the Christmas season. So this is the last week of this series, and and I'm excited to, to talk with you a little bit about um, the gift of of surprise, the gift of of, of mystery and and miraculous surprise that God offers to us so often, especially during the Christmas season. I think that Christmas is a time when we want to believe that miracles are possible, that. That there is something more at work in this world than, than what we do and what we can see. Um, we want to believe in second chances. 
We want to believe in fresh starts. We want to believe in things like love and joy and peace and hope. Um, we want to believe that they're not all just make-believe, but, but that they're real. So this morning, what I want to do is, is tell you a couple of stories. And both of these are about, about those things I just mentioned, that we desperately want to be true, especially love. And they, and they both speak about loving others, um, about kindness and loyalty, about families, about relationships, both stories give us a glimpse of a God who loves ordinary people like us, just doing ordinary kinds of things. And hopefully these stories will inspire us to believe that that miracles can and still do happen. So the first story is found in the Old Testament, and it's in the book of Ruth, the eighth book in the Bible. And I'm going to read to you actually from the whole story. It's not a very long story. It's a really easy thing to read through on your own. It doesn't take very much time. Um, so I'm going to re- be reading parts from the entire story, starting at the beginning. And I'm going to be reading from uh, the paraphrase, the message. So let's begin, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Once upon a time. It was back in the days when judges led Israel. There was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilian, all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died and Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah. No, not Oprah, Orpah, and the second, Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next ten years, but then the two brothers, Malon and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. Once upon a time, the story begins. Elimelech took his... Elimelech. I just think that is such a wonderful name. Elimelech. I know there's some of you expecting... And, you know, maybe you're, I just want to put it in a vote for Elimelech. Uh, matter of fact, let's say that name all together right now. Elimelech. What a great name. Elimelech. So Elimelech, he takes his family, he leaves his drought-stricken country to go search for food in the foreign land of Moab. And then he died. And it says that his wife, Naomi, let's say Naomi, Naomi, Naomi was left with two sons. And they married local women from Moab. Ten years later... They die. And I think that's just a really sad beginning to a story. I mean, sad enough, you might want to just stop there and just say, let's find something else to read. And and you've got to imagine that Naomi was heartbroken. And it's understandable. But you also have to kind of know a little bit about the culture to appreciate probably how deep her despair went. Family was extremely important in those days. I know family's important to us, but extremely important to these folks. And to have a family, you had to have sons. Sons who could pass on the family line, the family name. Now, remember the story. Naomi's sons are gone. Her husband, gone. She has no grandsons, gone. So her family line is gone. It's finished. 
Verse 6. One day, Naomi got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. And then skip ahead to verse 11. And Naomi was firm, talking with his daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-laws. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, on your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said, there's still hope, and this very night got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters. This is a bitter pill for me to swallow. More bitter for me than than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. Again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth embraced her and held on. Sad story. And don't you feel sorry for, for Naomi? At a time in her life when she's supposed to be bouncing grandchildren on her knee. Here she is all alone. God has not been good to her. And there's nothing she can do but, but just live out her lonely old life feeling very bitter about this whole mess that she's been thrown into. It's time to leave Moab, so she's going to go back to Bethlehem, to her homeland, alone. But she's not quite alone. She just can't shake this one daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth says, I'm going with you. She insisted that she was going to return to Bethlehem with Naomi, even if it meant giving up her chance to, to ever get married to one of her countrymen again. Actually, Ruth did more than insist. Listen to this. This is verse 16 and 17. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. Good grief. Who is this woman? I mean, that's pretty strong. This loyalty, this faithfulness that she's pledging to her mother-in-law. Who does that? Her mother-in-law. I didn't say anything. Um, but she's really something. And what in the world do you think is motivating her? I think it's as simple as, as love. I think she loves Naomi. She's been with her for 10 years. And over that time, she has grown to love her so deeply. She cannot imagine her mother-in-law going off by herself. She's She's going with her. That's just not even an option for her. If she's willing to leave her country, leave her family, leave the opportunity for her to get married to a Moabite man. I mean, she's willing to leave all of that behind because she loves her mother-in-law so much. Okay, so they arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth, and they begin to make this life for themselves. And it's not easy for two widows. Chapter 2 talks about how Ruth had to go off in search of food. And it's hard to imagine, but these two women were living just hand to mouth from one day to the next, just surviving another day and another day. And Ruth's best option for her was to go out into the fields that had already been harvested and to look for the grain that was left over just lying on the ground. That was their food. 
You know, I've had an opportunity to um, go on several mission trips over the years and, and to go to places like Mozambique and to um, Haiti. And, and several times I've been able to watch uh, women work in some of these rural vill- villages and work hard to support their families, uh, whether it's with a hole out in these fields or, or carrying water or sand or rocks in baskets on their heads or um, in the marketplace under the hot sun in the dirt and um, their feet and their hands were often thick and calloused and they looked so much older than their actual years. Um, They were toughened by the extreme living that was required of them just to survive from one day to the next and to help their family to do the same. And I can imagine Ruth being one of those women. Walking through these fields, these empty fields, just picking up any scrap that she could find. Trying to put together enough so that she and her mother-in-law can survive another another couple of days. And as she's scavenging for this, these leftovers, she happens upon a field that belongs to a man by the name of Boaz. And, and I say that she happens upon this field, but I want you to know that there's nothing in this story that I believe just happens by chance. And Boaz is a good man. He's actually a gentleman, which is kind of unusual in that day. And he's a man of some means. And it happens that he's also a close relative of Naomi's husband, who died in Moab. This is what Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 says. It so happened that Naomi had a relative by marriage, a man prominent and rich, connected with Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Now, before I go any further, I need to pause here and share with you a custom that the people of that day had. It was called Leveret Law. And it was designed to protect a a man's family line. If a man died and he had no sons, then the man's brother or the next closest male relative was called upon by law to marry the man's widow. So that she could have sons. Some of you are staring at me and shaking your head. So I don't want you to get too far down the road with this here. This was back then, okay? Um, and the and the law. Remember what I said about family. How family was so important. The family line to be extended. The name to be extended. You know, so important to them. This law was designed to keep the family line intact. So while visiting his field, Boaz he sees Ruth. He sees Ruth out there just. You know, looking around for scraps, anything that she can find. And he discovers who she is. So he talks to her. Verse 8. Then Boaz spoke to Ruth. Listen, my daughter. From now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Stay right here in this one. And stay close to my young women. Watch where they are harvesting and follow them. And don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. When you get thirsty, just feel free to go and drink from the water buckets that my servants have filled. And then verse 11, Boaz goes on. I've heard all about you. 
Heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to live among a bunch of total strangers. God rewards you well for what you've done and with a generous bonus besides from God to whom you've come seeking protection under his wings. So Boaz recognizes the kindness that Ruth has paid to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and he, in his own way, is going to share his kindness with her and he's going to give her a place to collect food and he's going to provide for her and he's going to protect her. So Ruth goes home and she tells Naomi of this, this kind man that she met and what he had done for her. And then listen to Naomi's response. This is verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Why? God bless that man. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. Then Naomi went on. That man, Ruth, is one of our circle of covenant redeemers, a close relative of ours. You see how her whole attitude changed? I mean, before, you know, in this deep despair and even resentment and anger and And now there's just some life and energy in her because she knows who Boaz is. He's a close relative of her husband. She remembers, she remembers the customs of her people. And it's like this this bright ray of light just breaks down into the darkness of her lonely life. Okay, so harvest time is over. Naomi is ready to take action. She has a plan. And in chapter three, she decides that it's time to call on Boaz to play the part of the closest male relative is outlined in Levert Law. So in a sense, what she does is she coaches her daughter-in-law to propose to Boaz. A real interesting story. You just go back and read all those verses in between here. I'm not going to go through all of that this morning. So she does, and he accepts her proposal. But there's just one wrinkle in this whole plan. Boaz actually isn't the next closest relative. There's one other guy who's even more closely related to Naomi's husband. So in chapter 4, Boaz meets this guy at the city gate. And that's the place where all business transactions take place. And, And he cleverly maneuvers this guy into giving up his claims on Naomi and Ruth. And then in verse 13, chapter 4, it says, Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. Naomi has a grandson. She has a family. Her family line will continue. God didn't forget her. He remembered her. He blessed her. And God restored her life through really the surprising, the miraculous, mysterious love and kindness of of this daughter-in-law, Ruth. And then one last thing about the story. Verse 17. The neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy. I just love that. Naomi's baby. There goes Naomi's baby boy. But his real name was Obed. Everybody say Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David. Now, if if you're up at all on your biblical genealogies. I don't know how many of you study biblical genealogies, you know, in your spare time or anything like that, but, but you'll, 
know by now that there's another reason why this is such a great story to read at this time of year. Because you're going to find the names of Boaz and Obed somewhere else in the Bible. In the book of Matthew, where the family line of a baby born in a major is traced. So let's look at that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The family tree of Jesus Christ, David's son, Abraham's son. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. And then we'll skip six generations up. Salmon had Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Boaz had Obed. Ruth was the mother. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. And David became king. And then we'll skip ahead 26 generations. Jacob had Joseph, Mary's husband, the Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the Jesus who was called Christ. The story of Naomi and Ruth is a wonderful story of love. It talks about how the love and kindness of, of one person becomes contagious and changes the lives of many. Well, actually, it changes the lives of everyone. Because it leads to the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world. This story is an example of how when love is shared, an atmosphere is created in which miracles can occur and, and God can work in surprising and wonderful ways. It's also a story about how God's love is always present in our lives. That God is always at work in our lives even when we may not recognize it. All right, that's the first story. Now I want to tell you a second story. And, and this is a modern story. Another story about love and kindness, of God's mysterious work in the lives of people, and it's also a Christmas story, and it's also a true story. This is called An Exchange of Gifts, and it was written by Diane Rayner. She writes, I grew up believing that Christmas was a time when strange and wonderful things happened, when wise and royal visitors came riding, when at midnight the barnyard animals talked to one another. And in the light of a, of a fabulous star, God came down to us as a little child. Christmas, to me, has always been a time of enchantment, and never more so than the year my son Marty was eight. That was the year that my children and I moved into a cozy trailer home in a forested area just outside of Redmond, Washington. As the holiday approached, our spirits were light, not to be dampened even by the winter rains that swept down Puget Sound to douse our home and make our floors muddy. Through that December, Marty had been the most spirited and busiest of us all. He was my youngest, a cheerful boy, blonde-haired and playful, with a quaint habit of, of looking up at you and cocking his head like a puppy when you talk to him. And actually, the reason for this was that Marty was deaf in his left ear. But it was a condition that he never complained about. For weeks, I'd been watching Marty. I knew that something was going on with him that he was not telling me about. I saw how eagerly he made his bed, took out the trash, carefully set the table and helped Rick and Pam prepare dinner before I got home from work. I saw how he silently collected his, his tiny allowance and tucked it away, spending not a cent of it. I had no idea what all this quiet activity was about, but I suspected that somehow it had something to do with Kenny. Now, Kenny was Marty's friend, 
And ever since they'd found each other in the springtime, they'd seldom been, been apart. If you called to the one, you got them both. Their world was, was the meadow, a horse pasture broken by a, a small winding stream where the boys caught frogs and snakes and where, where they'd search for arrowheads and hidden treasure or, the, or they'd spend the afternoon trying to feed peanuts to the squirrels. You know, times were, were hard for our little family and we had to do some scrimping to get by. With my job as a meat wrapper and with a lot of ingenuity around the trailer, we managed to have elegance on a shoestring. But not Kenny's family. They were desperately poor. And his mother was having a real struggle to, to feed and clothe her two, her two children. They were, they were good, solid family, but, but Kenny's mom was a proud woman and, and very proud. And she had strict rules. Well, how we worked as we did each year to make our home festive for the holiday. Ours was a handcrafted Christmas of gifts hidden away and ornaments strung about the place. Marty and Kenny would sometimes sit still at the table long enough to, to help make a few of those ornaments. But then in a flash, one would whisper to the other and they would be out the door, sliding cautiously under the electric fence and into the horse pasture that separated our home from Kenny's. Well, one night before Christmas, as I was preparing supper, my, Marty came to me and he said in a tone mixed with pleasure and pride, Mom, I bought Kenny a Christmas present. You want to see it? So that's what he's been up to, I said to myself. It's something he's wanted for a long, long time, Mom. Well, after wiping his hands on a dish towel, he pulled from his pocket the small box. And lifting the lid, I gazed at a pocket compass that my son had been saving all those allowances to buy a, a little compass to point an eight-year-old adventurer through the woods it's a lovely gift martin i said but even as i spoke this disturbing thought came to my mind i knew how kenny's mother felt about their poverty they could barely afford to exchange gifts among themselves and and giving presents to others was just out of the question i was sure that kenny's proud mother would not permit her son to receive something that he could not return in kind. So gently, carefully, I, I talked over the problem with Marty and, and he understood what I was saying. I know, Mom, I know, but, but what if it was a secret? What if they never found out who gave it? I didn't really know what to say to that. Well, the day before Christmas was rainy and cold and gray. The little kids and I just practically fell over one another trying to put the finishing touches on all the Christmas secrets and preparations at our house, getting ready for family and friends to stop by. You know, night settled in. The rain continued. I looked out the window over the sink and I, I just kind of felt this odd sadness. How mundane the rain seemed for a Christmas Eve. Would wise and royal visitors come riding on such a night? I doubted it. It seemed to me that Strange and wonderful things happened only on clear nights. Nights when you could at least see a star in the heavens. I turned from the window and as I checked on the food in the oven, I saw Marty slip out the back door. He wore his coat over his PJs and, and he clutched this tiny, carefully wrapped box. 
Down the soggy pasture he went, and then this quick slide under the electric fence and across the yard to Kenny's house. Up the steps on tiptoes, shoes squishing. Open the screen door just a crack. The gift placed on the doorstep. And then a deep breath, a reach for the doorbell, and press on it hard. And quickly Marty turned. He ran down the steps and across the yard in a wild race to get away unnoticed. And then suddenly, he banged into the electric fence. And the shock sent him reeling. And he lay there stunned on the wet ground, his body tingling. He was gasping for breath. And then slowly, weakly, confused and frightened, he began the grueling trip back home. Marty, we cried as he stumbled through the door. What happened? His lower lip was quivering and his eyes were brimming. I forgot about the fence that had knocked me down. Well, I hugged his little body to mine. He was still dazed and there was this red mark beginning to blister on his face from his mouth to his ear. So quickly I, I treated the blister and with a warm cup of cocoa soothing him, Marty's bright spirits returned. I tucked him into bed that night and just before he fell asleep, he looked up at me and he said, Mom, Marty didn't see me. I'm sure he didn't see me. Well, that Christmas Eve, I went to bed unhappy and puzzled. It seemed to me such a cruel thing to happen to a little boy on the purest kind of Christmas mission, doing what the Lord wants us all to do, giving to others and giving in secret at that. I didn't sleep well that night. Somewhere deep inside, I think I must have been feeling the disappointment that the night of Christmas had come and it had been just another ordinary, problem-filled night. No mysterious enchantment at all. By morning, the rain had stopped. The sun was out. The streak on Marty's face was still red, but I could tell that it wasn't serious. And we opened our presents and soon, not unexpectedly, Kenny was knocking on the door, eager to show Marty his new compass and tell him about the mystery of its arrival. It was plain that Kenny didn't suspect Marty at all. And while the two of them talked, Marty just smiled and smiled. And then I noticed, while the two boys were comparing their Christmases, nodding and gesturing and chattering away, Marty was not cocking his head. When Kenny was talking, Marty seemed to be listening with, with his deaf ear. Weeks later, a report came from the school nurse verifying what Marty and I already knew. Marty now has complete hearing in both ears. The mystery of how Marty regained his hearing and still has it remains that just that, a mystery. Doctors suspect, of course, that the shock from the electric fence was somehow responsible Maybe so. Whatever the reason, I just remain thankful to God for the good exchange of gifts that was made that night. So you see, strange and wonderful things still happen on the night of our Lord's birth. And one does not have to have a clear night either to follow a fabulous star. When your heart is filled with love for others and when that love is expressed, I believe that wonderful and miraculous things can happen. Lives can be changed, including our own, 
There's no better way for God to work in the world today than through the love that we express for those people around us. And and don't forget about God's love. I believe that God is always there in every situation expressing His care and His love for His people. For you. He did so hundreds of years ago when He sent His Son Jesus to live with us. He still is doing it yet today. That's one thing that's never going to change. So as we celebrate Christmas this week, it's my hope that that all of us, in our own way, will receive Christ's love, that we will share our love with people around us, and that we will expect God to act in miraculous, mysterious, and surprising ways. I'm going to pray, and uh, after that, Sarah and Quentin and Michael have a beautiful song that they're going to be sharing with us, and then we'll close with some worship. So let's pray. Father, for your good gifts that you give to us, we give you thanks. I just pray that um, all these extra things that are going on around us that are making us slightly dizzy some days, um, don't pull us away from from you and from what you intend to share with us this this Christmas season and help us to look for the opportunities that will be in front of us to share with others, to share the good gifts that you have given to us, your love, your grace, your forgiveness, joy and peace. Thank you that no matter what, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in our life, that you come, you come to us bearing good gifts. And we pray this all in the name of your son that you sent to live for us, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.